Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome back to ETFs for Beginners, where we sail the seven seas searching for safe harbor in stormy investing weather. Hi, Anna. Hi, Phil. How are you doing today? Good, good. And um, there's a nautical theme today because of our guest. Let us know who we've got on the podcast. Today we have Robin Bowerman from Vanguard Investments Australia. He is head of corporate affairs at Vanguard and a member of the executive team. Um, Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Alan Phil. Good to be back. We'd love to hear a little bit about your your background. I heard that before you joined Vanguard that you were actually a writer, a commentator, and an editor. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, a slightly different um, pathway to uh, the financial services sort of asset management world than probably most people in the industry. Had a long-term career as a journalist, worked at Sydney Morning Herald and um, other newspapers and organizations in the, in the old days when it was Fairfax Media. That's how long ago. It was about, what, 18 years ago now. So came up through the ranks of journalism. Um, you know, general journalists sort of covered politics and then got into economics and business uh, at the Sydney Morning Herald and eventually ended up editing investment magazines for the group. So that's where my interest in sort of personal investor, how do we educate personal investors, how do you actually help people make financial decisions sort of sprung from. So it was in that sort of guise when I was running some of the stable magazines that I first came across Jeremy Duffield, who had come over from Vanguard in the US to set up Vanguard in Australia, and then met Jack Bogle through him. Eventually, um, Jeremy asked me if I wanted to get a real job. So I ended up uh, sort of jumping ship, as they say, and leaving the media and sort of joining Vanguard. But I've actually continued to write uh, smart investing sort of blogs and columns for the past sort of 18 years. So Vanguard sort of always has this, this approach of sort of trying to talk plainly, put things in plain language that everyone can understand, and just keep um, getting across the simple messages around investing that's actually not that complex. The industry likes to make it complex because that helps, but um, we try and keep things pretty simple if we can. So tell me a little bit of how you jumped over. Um, I'd love to hear that. How did you get involved? What what was appealing about Vanguard? Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. In my role as a, the managing editor at Investment Magazines, I was responsible for setting up a number of industry awards like Fund Manager of the Year awards and uh, Investment Advisor ratings, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess when you're in that sort of business, you know, you're, you're trying to um, – you know, obviously engage investors, but the basic job is to sell magazines. And you're looking for sort of new ideas, investing, you know, what's the sort of smart things to be doing, what the strategies are, what the tax pieces are. And obviously, we, we, you could see that people responded with things like, you know, 10 hot share tips or the 10 new hot fund managers that, that are actually around town. But after doing that for a number of years, I had this bit of an epiphany where I said, well, let's go back and look at all the things that we've told investors to do and the sort of people we'd profiled, et cetera, and just, you know, how how well have they actually performed? And it was fairly sobering because 
some of the managers particularly that we promoted and, and sort of profiled etc had been at the top of their game and probably been top of the performance stakes in that particular year but when you actually look back three or four years later they weren't there they typically gone back to being average or middle of the pack or even in some cases actually disappeared it was that sort of background that i was beginning to question just you know, the, the sort of short-term performance-based decision-making that we were actually telling investors, you know, was a smart thing to do. So it was about then that I was introduced to Vanguard, uh, the notion of index funds, which frankly I didn't know much, if anything, about at all. Had the enormous pleasure of um, hosting a function with Jack Bogle when he came on his one and only trip to Australia to launch Vanguard to retail business. And talking to him about, you know, the power of indexing, you know, why it was a better way to actually invest, the sort of simplicity of it, the cost, the low cost value. And I guess <laughs> it really challenged me in terms of as a journalist, as an editor, trying to sell more magazines with the topics that we knew would, would get people's attention in the news agency or online. But was it actually the right thing for people to be doing from a long-term investing perspective? And, you know, that became, you know, quite a bit of a conundrum in terms of actually, you know, what, what we're actually sort of writing about. And it was interesting that when you put topics into a magazine or a website these days that talks about the, the long term, I'm talking about, you know, five, 10 year, the long term horizon, even 20 years, 30 years for, for superannuation, the level of reader engagement went down pretty strongly. When you put in, here's five hot tech stocks, the, le the level of reader engagement went up dramatically. So you had this sort of tension developing between people wanting short-term trading tips versus the realisation that actually the smart thing to do is to invest for the long term, keep costs low, don't trade too much. So, you know, this is the sort of messages that, um, you know, frankly are not ever going to sell a lot of magazines or get a lot of hits on a website. It sounds very boring, right? <laughs> the the long term investing, and it's interesting to see how much that has changed over the years as well. Because a lot of people are now buying into that long term investing strategy because they know it 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 works. Whereas um, I think in the past that that just wasn't something that people wanted to listen to because it's it's not exciting, right? In a lot of ways, exactly. And and I remember we, we ran you know as as all organisations do, we ran um, you know, focus group researchers. And trying to get a bit of a handle on, you know, is it the sort of young investors that like to trade around? Are the older investors smarter, wiser, etc.? And you know, I can remember very clearly one night, sort of having two different focus groups that I sat, you know, behind the, the sort of one-way glass mirror and observed. You had two people; they were both sort of mid forties, both sort of in professional jobs, university educated, and. You know, the question they were asked was, you know, if you were offered an investment that was going to perform around 10% a year, would that be of interest? And one person said, absolutely. I'd be a little concerned that the return, the 10% is a bit high. I'm probably thinking, you know, if, you get a, if you're getting 7 or 8%, you're doing really well, you know, above inflation, et cetera. The other person said, I wouldn't even look at it unless it's going to give me 15%. And these are people who are, you know, from a demographic point of view, were sort of, you know, two peas in a pod. They were very, very similar people, different, similar, similar sort of backgrounds. And yet their investing knowledge and, or experience, I should say, was completely different. 
when we drilled down on it and double clicked on it a bit, you know, one person had, had tried trading shares. He'd had a number of years where he'd bought and sold stocks and he, you know, responded to, you know, tips that he picked up at the golf club and, you know, this sort of stuff. And he'd lost, lost a fair bit of money and he realised that this is actually really, really hard to win over the long term. The other person had not really, um, you know, was just starting on an investing journey. They, they, they'd been, had a, had a property investment, but they were really starting in the stock market stuff and, and markets were running at about, you know, 12, 13%. So it was completely logical. It was based on their experience. So it was actually like, how do you cut through and get messages across to people so that they can understand the stuff that it's actually, you know, it is hard to outperform over the long term. And long term, I mean five, seven, ten years. And if you look at the Standard & Poor's uh, SPIVA index, you know, which measures the index performance versus active management performance, the message there is that about 80% of actively traded strategies will underperform the market index. So that's sort of a, you know, a fundamental challenge where it's really interesting to us as human beings, I think, because everything we're taught at school, at university, is that the harder you work, the smarter you become, the better you will perform, the better you will do, both at work, and career, and life, etc. So suddenly you talk about investing and say, well, actually, the really smart thing to do is to do nothing. Just buy the market and sit back, go off and enjoy life. It's just counterintuitive to everything that's ingrained into us as sort of competitive in, individuals and, human, and people who are professionally successful. The idea of telling, which I did once, a, a partner in a major law firm, that he really shouldn't be trading share portfolio as frequently as he was. You know, it, it was a complete challenge to everything in his ethos Everything he worked at was actually working harder, doing more transactions, getting going. So, you know, as human beings, we're not wired to be great investors. And markets, when they're roiling around like they are at the moment, it's natural that investors want to do something because they just looked up their superannuation and they've seen that the, the, the value of it's down. I must do something about that. Where, the, you know, the reaction that we would, that Vanguard would talk about is saying, you know, sometimes the smart thing to do is to do nothing, just write it through. Because as soon as you sell, or as soon as you transact, that's when you really crystallise the loss. And we've seen that through global financial crises. You see it through various sort of markets of turmoil. And, you know, it will pass, but it can be highly unnerving. And, you know, the, the, the sort of stay the course, long-term discipline is actually, you know, a hard message at times in periods like this because the natural inclination is for people to want to you know, rush to the cash so that they know that they can't lose any more money, et cetera. So it's, um, you know, it goes back to the sort of some of the behavioral finance studies that, you know, we're just not particularly well wired up as human beings in the brain to actually make sensible, rational, long-term decisions because there's too much emotion playing. I was uh, speaking with a financial educator recently who uh, said that some people open a brokerage account and it's like they turn into 16-year-olds that have been given a Lamborghini with a bottle of whiskey in the passenger seat. <laughs> and um, they're just headed for trouble. <laughs> Robin, you mentioned, you managed to slip in a couple of times there, the name Jack Bogle. Um, tell us about Jack Bogle because he's the person who has been credited with creating the index fund and the, the ETF. Yeah, well, certainly the index funds. Uh, ETFs we can talk a bit about separately, but... Um, with index funds, yeah, I mean, I mean, had the great pleasure of meeting and 
chatting and, and discussing sort of investment issues with Jack Bogle over my career at Vanguard over the last 18 years. Every time I went to the US, incredibly uh, accessible, would always make time to have a catch up and talk talk through whatever the issue of the day was. So, And yeah, I mean, he, he basically was you know, a pioneer of the industry by setting up the first index fund for retail investors. So the first index fund in the US, you know, 40 odd years ago was set up to allow people to, to be able to buy the market. In terms of overnight successes, this took, you know, the best part of a decade. It, uh, If you read his biography, the launch of the fund did not go well. It was, uh, it raised sort of a fraction of what they're looking for. But you know, he was absolutely passionate about this as as a, a way to invest, and he had academics like Burton Malkiel sort of writing a book, you know, uh, which actually sort of promoted the whole idea of the index and the market fund, etc. So, Jack became the crusader, and in some ways, the lightning rod for some of the anti-indexing approach. You know, he was accused at one point of being un-American because you know th- this idea that you. You shouldn't strive to outperform the market you know, to a bunch of fairly large brokers. That seemed like um, blasphemy or against the American- Communism. Communism. <laughs> Communism, perhaps. Um, but he was undeterred and, you know, people like Warren Buffett, I think, have been quoted as saying that, you know, they, they should erect a statue in dedication to Jack for all that he did for investors, not just in the US, but, you know, globally- because you know he's actually saved people huge amounts of money in terms of uh, the fees that they pay to buy the index funds, but also you know the outcomes that that, that investors in sort of in, you know, that both Vanguard and other index providers um, have been able to reap the rewards of, and it was really Vanguard has been set up as a mutual, a true mutual, where in the US where the investors are also the shareholders, so. The ethos of it was always about doing the right thing, you know, giving investors the best chance of success over the long term. So, regardless of the incredibly privileged that um, got to know him through his lifetime, you know, sadly before his, his uh, passing, but took on a lot of the sort of approach that he took. And just, it's all about pretty basic economics, you know, companies, you know, make stuff, make profits. That's the sort of the dividend part of the game. The, the share price can move around. I mean, that, that's a speculative part of the game and you can get capital value out of capital gain out of that. But it's really about understanding that it's it's the um, the economic sort of engine that sits underneath it, the stuff that makes goods, makes serv- you know, provides services, et cetera, that actually delivers the value to the economy and ultimately to the investors who are shareholders in it. It was quite late in life where he, um, he started Vanguard, wasn't it? And um, he was pretty broke at the time. Yeah, well, he was basically fired by his former employer, so he, he was looking for a job. So he, you know, that's where he, he set up the Vanguard approach. But he, he, his interest in the idea of indexing, without having perhaps formulated it properly, was went back to his um, university days at, at Princeton, where he'd written a thesis around, around the idea of it. So he'd obviously been uh, mulling it over and sort of um, working it through for for decades before it actually came to life. Jack Bogle is such a le- legend, you know, you, you can't think about investing without mentioning his name. And similarly, Vanguard is such a household name. What do you think has kind of made Vanguard so successful over the years? And I, I know I have my own thoughts, but I'd love to hear from you who's from the insider. Why, why is Vanguard so successful in the way that it is? Why do people connect with Vanguard when they think of ETFs or index funds? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
Yeah, and I, and I think it's pretty simple. I mean, I think it, it is about taking a long-term approach, keeping the product structures pretty simple so, so investors can understand them, talk to investors about you know the need for discipline, the need to set investment goals, the need to have a financial plan, be diversified, understand that there is risk around this uh, in terms of market risk, etc., and set up your asset allocation and then just stay the course, keep going on the journey, particularly through periods like this. I think that's the reason that Vanguard has actually been successful over a long time is with what it says on the tin is what we actually do. It's actually about keeping an idea uh, about a good line of sight on what's the long-term goal, what's the sort of approach that's going to give investors the best chance of investment success. And that to us is pretty simple. Have a pretty balanced, diversified portfolio and to absolutely channel Jack Bogle, keep your costs low because unlike just about everything else we do in life, the more you pay in investing, the less you get. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cost is a really big one. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on how other funds function in, in relation to Vanguard and, and why costs are so important. As you, as you sit here and look at markets and you look at the performance of um, you know, both equity markets, bond markets, um, property markets, etc., the one thing we know for sure is that you don't know what the future performance will be of the markets. You know, markets give and you know, markets take away. But there's volatility, there's cycles, there's economic influences and markets, and that's, that's the nature of markets, and that's what we should expect, and that's what's actually normal. So you can't control performance. You know, there are lots of people, smart, very, very smart people, much smarter than I ever will be, who believe that they can forecast markets or at least that they can actually tackle that. That's fine. People can build businesses doing that. But the one thing you know for certain as an investor, when you're actually sitting down for, with a financial advisor and you're talking about your portfolio, the one thing you know for certain is what the cost will be. You can control it. So it's more about what can you control and what do you have to accept that you cannot control. You can't control markets. You can control cost. And the less you pay, the less the drag on the performance of the fund on, on the portfolio going forward. That's part of the reason why ETFs, I think, have become you know, successful both in the US but also in Australia over the last 10 years is because they've been able to put tools in the hands of investors at, you know, relatively low price. I mean, you can buy the Vanguard US stock market fund for, you know, three basis points now. I mean, when I first joined or actually back even back before that when I was writing about the industry, that sort of pricing would have been – the strict domain of large institutional investors. And now someone sitting at home on a laptop or on their iPhone even can actually buy the total US share market for three bips and you know, be done in three or four different clicks. So that's been the, the, one of the powers of the ETFs has actually been it's democratized investing tools in my mind. 
and it's given people the powerful way to do asset allocation across their whole portfolio. You you can now have a US stock portfolio, you can have the Australian market, you can have the global market, you can have global bond market. If you go back 10, 15 years ago, that stuff was really, really hard for an individual investor sitting in their bedroom to put together, if not impossible, or it was at least very expensive if you went through your local broker. So these are the sort of things where technology, you know, that, you know, again, the Bogle legacy, I think, is actually that indexing is a disruptive technology. It's not an investment product. Per se. I mean, obviously, there are funds and that's what Vanguard's made successful. But it's really the underlying technology to be able to track markets or parts of markets or different characteristics of markets that has really unlocked the power of investing and put it uh, in the hands of you know ordinary folks like us, retail investors looking to save for school kids' education, for property deposits, for retirement, whatever whatever the goal is, you know you can now access this stuff for a pretty low amount of money and get started. And you know the sooner people get started, obviously the better chance of success they have. You're kind of now referring to portfolio construction. Um, where would you suggest? listeners go to to try and get an idea about assessing what their aims and goals are and then how they should put a portfolio together uh, for their own particular needs of course without giving personal advice i mean one of this is one of the i think opportunities that i think a lot of investors miss there is a lot of you know effectively free information if you look at you know use vanguard as, as just an example but you can come to the website you can look at the diversified funds so you can look at the growth fund the balance fund the high growth fund you can see the asset allocation mix you know how much is in shares how much is in property how much is in bonds that you know the smartest people inside vanguard have actually built these portfolios you can go to a super fund uh, the major super funds, they all have, you know, growth balanced uh, options. Look at the asset allocation mix within those. I mean, this is powerful information for ordinary investors to understand. And then it's about understanding, well, wh- where does my risk profile actually sit? How much risk are you prepared to take? I've never really met an investor in all the seminars, etc. that I've done across the country. I've never yet, if, whenever you ask a, a, a group of individual investors, what sort of investor are you? Almost to a person, they will say, I'm conservative. Yet, when you actually look at the way they invest, and one particular chap comes to mind who said he was a really conservative investor, all he ever bought were bank shares. And I said to him, well, you know, on a diversification basis, that's I would categorize that as a high-risk portfolio. Because if something happens to the banking sector, you know, you're 100% exposed to it. And you know, it was a pretty interesting discussion as we went into the night. <laughs> but the, the point about it is, is investors need to understand where they sit in their risk profile. You know, a 30-year-old has a highly different risk profile to a 64-year-old about to retire. So you need to understand where you are. Time, you know, is, is a terrific sort of indicator of it. So it's about understanding what your risk is and then, you know, how much equity risk you want to take, how much, um, you know, you want bonds to be in the portfolio. And I mean, you know, there's possibly a separate discussion here around, you know, the bond market, but uh, at Vanguard, we believe strongly that even when uh, bonds, you're not in their portfolio necessarily for their performance, they're in there for the ballast to keep the portfolio stable through periods like this. And, yeah, you know, they still move around, but 
you know, there's a big difference in the volatility of, um, you know, a well-diversified bond portfolio versus a, you know, say a concentrated equity uh, portfolio. But I think, Phil, yeah, the other piece of it is a lot of people, the value of advice cannot be, you know, it's hard to understate it. We, we think financial advice is really valuable, should be paid for, you should value it because an advisor can actually help you construct a portfolio that suits your personal needs using sort of different professional risk profiling tools, et cetera. So there's a lot of value in actually investing in your own financial future by, you know, getting a financial plan done. It may be that the financial plan ends up in the drawer uh, gathering dust for a couple of years because not much has sort of moved or changed. But I can tell you at times like this, people that have a financial plan, have a financial advisor they can call, incredibly valuable. Even if it, all it does, it, it stops you doing something. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, a, a good financial planner that I talk to regularly, you know, I've often asked him, you know, what's the most valuable thing you offer your clients? And his usual answer is, I hold a mirror up and stop them doing something stupid. And it's, a, it's really hard to actually quantify how much value that adds but it is actually one of the most valuable things an advisor can do is just saying, well, if you've set up, you know, if you're a 40-year-old, you've set up a financial plan to get you to get you through to retirement, and two years later the markets are bouncing around and down 10 15% or whatever, but what's actually changed in your asset allocation uh, and your financial planning mix? Has it really changed that much that you want to rush to cash? Or in reality, this is actually an, an opportunity to ride your way through it, you know, even dollar-cost averaging money into markets that are down and 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 stay the course. A, a lot of this information is so important, I think, around your risk tolerance. And uh, for people who have been investing for a longer period of time, they may have seen the ups and downs of investing. But for someone who's new, I think what you're talking about is so crucial, right? Because a lot of people may have started last year, this year, and the market is now down. And that's very, very scary, right? It's very scary to be like, okay, I, I'm, I'm planning on long-term, but everything I'm putting in looks like it's, it's being lost. And I think something that you said, Robin, was around until you sell, until you transact, that's not crystallized. And um, I think that that's such an important thing to note around the long-term investing. And um, again, it comes down to that risk tolerance, right? Like how diversified are you? And similarly, what I find, especially with a younger generation, no one's talking about bonds. So I really love that you actually brought up bonds and the stability of bonds and why bonds are necessary. Um, can you just expand a little bit more on that, especially for people who are maybe new to investing, who haven't considered bonds because bonds kind of are uh, seen a little bit negatively, I would say, over the last little while, and um, why why it might be worth considering? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> and I think that the... You know, for younger investors or you know people starting out, I mean, the good news is time is on your side. This is actually a period when young people can actually put time absolutely to their ultimate benefit because they can get investing in markets. Now, would you rather pay premium prices? And we're channeling Warren Buffett here, but would you rather pay a premium price for a hamburger? Or would you rather buy hamburgers when they're on discount? Depends which one's better. Right now, <laughs> right now, you know, markets are sort of at a discount, and yet we, we tend to buy the share market when it's just had a, a bumper year and it's sort of actually at high high valuations, high prices. So you're actually paying a premium for it. 
when markets are like they are now, it, it actually you know the the value is obviously much much is down, and that's the scary bit. That's the emotional sort of component of it. But you actually are buying the unit in the in the ETF or the share in the in the company at a lower price than what you would have done perhaps a year ago. So I think you know getting started is is always a really interesting thing. I mean, you know, the, the best day to getting started is probably yesterday, um, but it's actually about setting up a regular sort of discipline. So someone that can put save two hundred dollars a month, hundred dollars a month, whatever it might be, just get started. In terms of decisions, etc., what I suggest to people is to look at diversified products. So there are diversified ETFs on the market. For example, I know we're focusing here on ETFs, but now you can buy with one ETF, you can buy a diversified portfolio that's got uh, shares in, it's got international shares, it's got property in, and it has bonds in it. And people sometimes say to me, you know, why, why have bonds in a portfolio that low performance, you know, been doing nothing for the last couple of years, blah, blah, blah. The answer is because in periods like this, what bonds do is give you the sort of safe harbour, the ballast. I mean, if you look at the volatility of the, the share market, it can go from up 30%, 40%, down 60%. If you look at bond portfolio, you know, it, it, it can go up you know, 4 or 5%, maybe 10%, and it can go down. But that's a hell of a lot you know, better than uh, the volatility. So it actually helps stabilise the portfolio. It's the ballast you've got. It's a, in Australia, what we find that people don't really understand the fixed income componentry in asset allocation. And I had a long involvement with the self-managed super fund uh, sector through the association there. And what we saw there was that people use cash almost as a as a proxy for fixed income investing. They'd have 30 or 40% sitting in cash and they'd have 50, 60% in equities and 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 um, property investment. So that people are sort of doing it in a different way. But I mean, the, the fixed income portfolio is actually really important. And it's why it, it is a bit like the poor relation in the investing world. It doesn't have the sort of high octane appeal of equities, much less things like crypto. Um, but it serves a really, really useful purpose in terms of balancing your portfolio out and getting back to balancing your risk. The the unusual nature of markets is not today. The unusual nature was the last decade of almost constant growth. Normally, our markets will bounce around. So what we're seeing today, I'd say, is actually a healthy sort of normal correction and a reminder that there is risk in this. There is risk that you will lose your money. Within, with any investment, there's a risk. Has to be. Because that's you know you're trading you're putting the money at risk in the in the in the expectation of the reward that will come down the track, but it's you know this in a in a sense I think a generation is getting um, you know perhaps a little bit of an education in terms of the volatility in the share market and people should learn from it but understand that this is why you diversify so you don't have all your money in one equity you know one share one equity fund whatever it might be because there's, there's a whole different levels of risk. But market risk is significant and people need to understand it as they plan their way forward, you know, towards ultimately towards retirement, et cetera. Hopefully that answers the, part of the question at least. No, that was great. Thank you. Because um, I often also think about the bonds and cash allocation and how some people choose to not choose the bonds but hold the cash. So it was interesting that you touched upon that as well. Okay, well, just before we go, let's um, just have a quick uh, chat about the Vanguard Interactive Index Chart. 
which um, you like to point listeners to. Yeah, and I mean, I think just there's a bunch of tools and calculators on the Vanguard website, which you know are obviously open for people to go in and play with. Um, the, the Vanguard Index. Uh, the interactive chart there, I think, is a fantastic sort of tool. It just lets people put in different parameters, different asset allocations, etc., and just see how different asset classes have performed. But the most important lesson out of that index chart is when you look at even you know if you if you look at the, if you frame it around the last month and you look at the Australian equity market, you know it will look a certain way if you widen that frame widen the lens and look at it over 10 20 even 30 odd years it looks really different so people who live through the gfc got a, a pretty intense education in terms of you know markets uh, you know companies collapsing markets plunging etc cetera, etc cetera. you look at the gfc now in over a decade and you think well wasn't such a big deal we could have ridden our way through that but a lot of people decided to exit pretty much at the bottom, you know, when the GFC hit. So, again, it's the it's the try and give yourself the perspective, the longer-term perspective, because that really helps people stay disciplined and, and stay on course to the asset allocation and the sort of investment goals that have actually set themselves. Okay, and at this point, I'd like to recommend your newsletter as well, which is one of only two investing newsletters I semi-regularly read. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for that, Phil. But yeah, I mean, the, the smart investing newsletter we, we send out each week, I mean, it, it really just aims to sort of help inform and educate investors. And this is not, you know, hot topic type information. It's actually trying to remind people of what the basic principles are. If you, you know, investing, the, the investment industry likes to make things fairly pretty complicated and complex. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, new and fads that come along from time to time. What we like to do is just bring back people back to basics and just understand what the principles are of investing, why are you doing it in the first place, what your long-term goals are, how you can actually manage your risk, and how that you can, again, to challenge Jack Bogle, keep costs low as you possibly can. Robin, thank you so much. It was fantastic to have you on the show. Lots of great information. And um, I am a little bit jealous that you met Jack Bogle, but it's great talking to you. This is the closest I'll I'll ever get to that. Um, if people want more information, where do they go? Where do they check it out? Uh, best place is to go to the Vanguard website, vanguard.com.au. And look, you know, go, go to our uh, investment resources. There's tools, calculators. Sign up to the Smart Investing Newsletter if they're so inclined. And uh, yeah, a heap of information there, a lot of product uh, fact sheets and data and performance data. So again, a lot of free information which people can actually put to good use, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin. Thanks, guys. That was, that was great. I actually am very jealous. But um. <laughs> If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend. It may help them and help us keep going with the show. Also, don't forget to rate us. ETFs for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not ETFs for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 